podcast family way before I was born. I mean, way before I was born, okay? In the year 1964, John O'Sullivan published his criteria for oral glucose tolerance testing in pregnancy. 1964. That was back in the journal Diabetes. And boy, we've learned a lot about gestational diabetes from 1964 to present day. However, there's still some controversies and some misapplications of gestational diabetes testing even today. For example, although ACOG and SMFM do favor the two-step diagnostic process for gestational diabetes testing, some use the one-step 75-gram oral glucose tolerance test. And even with that, there's some variances. Although it is not the traditional and the uniformly accepted way of using the one-step 75-gram oral glucose tolerance test, some only get a fasting value and then go straight to a single value at two hours. That's not how it was originally described to begin with, because it was fasting one hour, and then of course a two-hour value. And then the two-step process isn't immune to variance either, because some use the lower cutoff value of the carpenter costing criteria, while some use the higher value of the National Diabetic Data Group. By the way, right after this intro, I'm going to give you some new data that's coming out next month in November of 2022 in the Green Journal, which is a systematic review comparing the one-step and the two-step glucose tolerance test in pregnancy, and why the two-step process is favored. I'm going to get you that data in just a minute. But talking about variances of practice, one of the other issues that some practices do here in the U.S. is that they check capillary blood glucose instead of a venous blood sample. Does that matter? No one will argue that there's definitely attractive items in using point-of-care testing with a glucometer. But is that really evidence-based? I mean, is a capillary blood sugar going to give you the same result as a venous blood draw? Well, we're going to answer that question according to the data in this podcast. So, point-of-care glucometers for GDM diagnoses. Accurate or not? Let's find out. Our goal is to keep everyone up to date in practicing evidence-based medicine because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Now, before we get into the issue on capillary blood glucose or glucometer testing, as promised, I want to give you some new data that's coming out November 2022 in the Green Journal. This is a systematic review and meta-analysis, and the lead author is Brady. The title of this new publication is One Step, Compared with Two-Step Gestational Diabetes Screening and Pregnancy Outcomes. This systematic review included randomized controlled trials and observational studies that compared the one-step and the two-step GDM testing strategies. After doing this meta-analysis, the authors concluded that despite a significant increase in GDM diagnoses with the one-step testing, there really was no difference in the rate of LGA neonates. Plus, one-step testing was associated with higher rates of neonatal intensive care admission, probably because they were checking for hypoglycemia, and that's exactly what they found. The one-step test cohort, because it involved more intervention, actually led to just more complication like neonatal hypoglycemia. So all to say that the one-step testing, according to this meta-analysis, all that it did was increase the diagnoses of GDM without really significantly impacting the rates of LGA neonates, and it just led to a bunch of neonatal hypoglycemia because these patients were treated aggressively when they probably didn't have to. 
Oh my goodness, I'm definitely not trying to throw the one-step test under the bus. I'm not. It's just that that's what the data shows, and that's why ACOG and SMFM do favor the two-step process over the one-step process. Plus, here's another clinical pearl. Remember that with the two-step process, if they do move on from the one-hour 50-gram test to the three-hour 100-gram oral challenge, you can also diagnose impaired glucose tolerance in addition to finding GDM criteria. Oh, I do know, I know, I know the other rebuttal to that is, well, if you do a one step, then it decreases patient noncompliance because they may not come back. I get it. Trust me, that's my exact patient population. But if we're really going to be evidence-based, we really do need to explain to the patient that if they do fail the one hour, it is going to set them up for the three hour. But It seems to be, at least by the burden of the data, that the two-step process is in the patient's best interest. For my podcast family, remember, that's not the focus of this session. It's not about the one-step or the two-step process. It's about capillary blood glucose for diagnosis of GDM. Now, be very clear. I understand that glucometers and capillary blood glucose finger sticks, that is the norm, the traditional norm for diabetes care once they're diagnosed. And that's not what I'm talking about. We're not talking about management after their diagnosis of GDM because finger sticks are still part of that. Remember that continuous glucose monitors in pregnancy is a brand new concept, and that's taking off. It's already taken off in the UK, but we're slow to adopt here in the US, but it is a trend that is moving. So right now, I just want to be very clear, what we're talking about is finger steps for using point-of-care glucometers for the diagnosis of GDM after a glucose challenge, not about maintenance, all right? So for maintenance, once you have a diagnosis of diabetes, please continue to use your glucometers until wearable devices become a, a standard issue in pregnancy. Wearable devices have a lot of advantages in the non-pregnant population, but right now in pregnancy, we're still unfortunately dealing with finger sticks. So to be clear, this is about glucometers and point-of-care testing for diagnosis, not for follow-up and management. Now that we've made that clarification, let's get into the three different approaches or the three different ways that we can assess the body's level of glucose. Only one of the three ways is the lab reference gold standard, and that's the venous blood draw. So be very clear in the first clinical pearl. As of right now, after a glucose challenge in pregnancy, all the reference values, so for the one hour, if you're doing the 50-gram two-step process, it's either a cutoff value of 140 with the National Diabetic Data Group or Carpenter-Costin's lower value of 130, and that's a venous blood draw. All right. So right now, out of the three ways to assess the levels of glucose in the body, only one is the approved diagnostic tool, which is the reference lab standard, and that's the venous blood draw. The other two are more for monitoring after the diagnosis of diabetes is made, and that includes capillary blood glucose or glucometers, otherwise known as a finger stick, and wearable devices. Wearable devices, however, are not capillary or whole blood. They are interstitial fluid of glucose. And by the way, all three of those have different values. Let's first talk about continuous glucose monitors. Things like the Freestyle Libre that go into the back of the arm are measuring glucose in the interstitial fluid. And while it is pretty comparable to whole blood or a venous draw at stable levels, after a glucose tolerance load, after you eat, the blood glucose level actually spikes 
first and then it's followed by a lag by what is found in the interstitial fluid. All right. So interstitial fluid is great at steady state in between meals, but after an immediate glucose load or after a meal, blood glucose spikes first, and then it, there's a, a small amount of lag time for that to be caught by the sensor in the interstitial fluid. And the reverse is also true. If your blood is going to precipitously drop, the blood drop in your glucose is going to be identified first by whole blood, and then the lag occurs in the interstitial fluid. So it's not real-time glucose assessment like it's in your venous system. There's a little bit of lag after a meal, and then there's a little bit of lag in finding that by the sensor if there's a precipitous drop. But in general, at steady state throughout most of the day, there's a good correlation between venous blood and interstitial fluid. But don't think that the, the little sensor read that the Freestyle Libre is reading is the same as your whole blood because it depends on where you are in your meal intake. No, this is not an advertisement for Freestyle Libre. It's just the first name that popped into my head. So they're making me do this disclosure. No, this is not endorsed by any continuous real-time glucose monitor. Thank you. Well, now that we've tackled interstitial fluid, what about capillary blood glucose or the finger stick? Well, physiologically, glucose concentrations in capillary blood glucose are about 2 to 5 milligrams per deciliter higher than venous blood in the fasting patient. You're like, ah, 2 to 5 milligrams per deciliter, that's nothing. And you're totally right. That's very comparable in the fasting state. But here's the clinical pearl postprandially, in other words, like after a glucose challenge, <laughs> glucose levels can be as high as 20 to 70 milligrams per deciliter. That's about 20 to 25% higher in capillary blood than a concurrently drawn sample from the venous system. So in other words, after a glucose tolerance, if you're checking it, if you're trying to diagnose GDM based on finger stick, it can be 20 to 25% higher than a venous draw. So it's going to likely overcall it. All right, podcast family, let's pause there for a minute. So that's a big cause for concern. And that's why the reference standard for the diagnosis of a failed screen as a one hour or a failed diagnostic test as a three hour uses venous blood draw. Yes, it's not convenient. Yes, you don't get the, the results right away. And the patient doesn't see the results in real time. Those are all disadvantages of the system. However, it's much more accurate than a finger stick, especially after a glucose load. A report that was published in the Journal of Diabetes and Scientific Technology in May of 2020 also found that the accuracy of some hospital-based glucometers weren't even the same even within one unit of a hospital or within different wards. So that's the other issue is that not only is there variance between blood glucose in the venous system and capillary blood glucose on a finger stick, but the actual glucometer itself cannot be standardized. Yep, one machine to the next, the variance based on the finger stick can be as high as 20%. So that's another issue to be cautious about during the finger stick after a glucose challenge that is not only higher in the blood based on a finger stick value, but there's no way to actually control that glucometer. Yes, we use a control and we kind of set the machine to itself, but it can vary with another machine if checked just two minutes later. This is why the reference standard for these tests is a venous draw and not a finger stick.
Okay, now that we've laid down that basic science, we've talked about blood measurements in the three compartments between venous, capillary blood, and interstitial fluid. And we talked about the problem with some glucometers. I get that. But where's the data? I mean, has anybody actually looked at this? Has anybody actually evaluated the accuracy of point-of-glare glucometers for the diagnosis of gestational diabetes? I mean, are they accurate or not? Well, of course there's data for that because it has been looked at. So when we come back, we're going to review a publication by a lead author, last name is Adam. And the original article published back in 2018 is evaluating the utility of a point-of-care glucometer for the diagnosis of gestational diabetes. And that's exactly what we're talking about, right? Well, let's find out what these authors found in their publication coming up next. In that publication by Adam and Reader, again, the title is Evaluating the Utility of a Point-of-Care Glucometer for the Diagnosis of Gestational Diabetes, the results were, well, kind of disappointing. Now, these authors just used one branded glucometer, which was an AccuCheck device. And I'm not going to give you the name because then I have to do another disclosure, but it's one that we can find in the U.S. as well. I mean, you just pick this up out of the shelf. And what they found is that the sensitivity, the specificity of this was just not very good. And what they concluded is that the accuracy compared to the reference standard blood draw is just not there. One of the main reasons that these authors were so disappointed in these results is because they were hoping that this accuracy was maintained because they were publishing on behalf of low-resource settings. This was actually published out of a group in South Africa, and they're like, man, if we can just do point-of-care tests with our AccuChecks, with our glucometers, and not send them to a lab because labs aren't even around in this area, then we're going to make this a win for our patients. But unfortunately, the accuracy of the glucometer compared to the venous sample was just not there. As the author stated their publication, quote, In this present study, the glucometer was found to have poor sensitivity and specificity for the diagnosis of GDM. Overall, about 20% of cases of GDM would not have been diagnosed by the glucometer alone. I love what these authors did because they try to find out what happened here. I mean, what affected the accuracy of this glucometer? And what they found was a variety of things. They said not only was the point of care, the glucometer itself, was it hard to standardize among all the different patients, but there was issues with the test strips themselves. There were also some patient medications that may have interfered with the CBG blood value. The patient's hematocrit value was found to actually affect the glucose result on the finger stick the blood pH, and also even where the blood was actually taken from the finger, in other words, from the fat pad or off to the side, all of those affected the detection method by the point-of-care device. And you see, this is why it's so variable. I mean, there's no standardized way. Well, do you take the finger stick from the fat pad or from the side? Which finger do you do? Uh, what temperature do you have the room at? Because if the room is very cold, vasoconstriction could affect the capillary blood glucose. So many variables go into play here if we're using this for diagnosis. Again, I'm not throwing finger sticks under the bus. It is how we do maintenance and care after the diagnosis. But for the actual diagnosis itself, it just seems to have a lot lacking compared to a venous blood draw. Now, in all disclosure, I do need to drop kind of a little bomb here, okay? Because I'm kind of making this sound like, well, finger sticks, just no way should those be done. Well, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. But why does FIGO then endorse that in low-resource settings? 
FIGO says, look, for the diagnosis of gestational diabetes, point-of-care glucometers can be allowed in low-resource areas. Well, the answer is right there in the definition, because they're low-resource areas. We'd rather have a little bit of inaccuracy than not have any kind of testing at all. In other words, we may catch 80% and miss 20, but it's better than missing 100% if we don't check anybody at all. So FIGO does make the case of using finger sticks in low-resource settings. Okay, now that's FIGO. Remember, ACOG still recommends venous blood draw. But here's the catch. So I live in a big state. So for those who don't know, I'm in Texas. And Texas has some very rural areas. And so I've had great conversations with practitioners really in the middle of nowhere. They're like, look, I don't have a lab around. I mean, I have to use a glucometer. I get that. At that point, you have to do what you have to do. But do your best to try to standardize that glucometer and all glucometers in your area to try to maximize reads. But here's one thing that I can't understand. The study that we just reviewed, remember, that study said that 20% of diagnoses would have been missed by finger sticks. Well, that's a little weird because all the other data that has used glucometers actually overcalled it. Remember what we talked about before, that capillary blood glucose after a glucose challenge actually can give you an artificial rise up to 20 to 25%. That's higher than venous sample. So you're more likely to overcall diabetes than undercall. So that's a little conundrum that I can't figure out. I mean, why these authors actually had undercall rather than overcall, but it still points to the lack of accuracy of glucometer. Everybody good? In general, postprandial, after a glucose load, capillary blood sugar is typically 20 to 25% higher. But according to this paper, it was actually responsible for 20% of misdiagnoses. Go figure. All right, podcast families, we're coming to the end of the session. I want to leave you with another publication from 2019. This is out of the Journal of Clinical and Translational Endocrinology, and it really does seal the case of why using point-of-glare glucometers for diagnostic testing, not for maintenance and care, but for diagnostic testing can be problematic. This was original research, and the title was Accuracy of Five Plasma calibrated glucometers to screen for and diagnose gestational diabetes in low-resource clinic settings. I mean, sounds pretty good, right? It's exactly what we're talking about. All right, low-resource setting. I got it. I'm in a remote area. I'm going to check the accuracy of five different plasma-calibrated glucometers to screen for GDM. Well, what happened? These authors examined 592 consecutive women who underwent a 75-gram oral glucose tolerance test between 24 and 28 weeks gestation in a South African community health clinic. Capillary blood glucose was measured by one of five glucometer brands, each paired with a routine lab hexokinase method of plasma glucose measurement. What does that mean? It's a venous blood draw. The laboratory results served as a gold standard reference for GDM diagnoses. Of the five, only three of the glucometer brands evaluated fulfilled the analytic accuracy requirements that were acceptable for clinical use. You're like, hey, three out of five, that's not bad. Yeah, but this was on a strict protocol. And again, three out of five, you can think that's high and that's totally fine. I consider that disappointing. And so did the authors. They concluded, quote, not all glucometers may be suitable for GDM screening as only three were accurate compared to the reference test and then only at the fasting state. 
In other words, they were not accurate anymore in the postprandial period. Yeah, that does kind of suck. Anyway, the lead author of that publication was Lindsay Dixon et al. Unfortunately, these kind of variances in glucometers and inaccuracies are nothing new. Reuters actually published this story back in 2011. On January the 14th, 2011, Reuters published out of Healthcare and Pharma, quote, blood sugar meters may give inaccurate readings, end quote. And this article focused specifically with women who have diabetes in pregnancy. Now, this Reuters report did not have to do with using these glucometers for the diagnosis of GDM. This was for the aftercare. So these patients were all diagnosed with gestational diabetes and then given glucometers like we normally do. Well, what this report was focused on was once they have a diagnosis, they check their blood sugar in one machine and then check their blood sugar in a different machine. And it varied up to 16% highlighting the potential inaccuracies and variants of these different glucometer devices. All right, podcast family, I totally get point-of-care glucose testing is super easy, especially because you don't have to send the patient out, you get the results right away, and it kind of saves time. I totally get it. And if you do point-of-care testing and all the values pass, that's fantastic because you're more likely to overcall it than undercall it. But even if you undercall it, you still have to worry about the accuracy of the glucometer. And if you diagnose a failure, you have to worry that you may have overcalled it in the postprandial state. That's why, despite all the disadvantages of having to send the patient for a venous blood draw, it seems to be the better call for gestational diabetes diagnosis and, yep, even screening. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. So remember, especially for those getting ready to take your oral boards this fall, if you're asked on the oral boards, what's the reference benchmark, the gold standard for a diagnosis of GDM based on blood source? It's not capillary blood glucose and it's not interstitial fluid. It's still the venous blood draw. All right, everyone, thanks for being part of our podcast family. We'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.